All right. So today on the podcast, we're switching because I was a guest last time. So now we have the two guests here, Brian Borstein and Aaron Straker. How you guys doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm just happy to be here with you. Glad that uh, glad we get to do this. Yeah, we good. Same. Happy to be here. So, Aaron, I'm sure I, this is not remotely creative, but when, how many times have you heard A.A. Ron? From the, oh, uh, I mean, the, when that Key and Peele thing came out, it, like people think it's the first time. Like I haven't heard it before. And right. Like, hey, Aaron, have you seen that? Has anyone said that before? Like, yeah, they have. Right, right. Yeah. So, Brian, I just wanted to, you know, talk about our DMs we had back and forth on our strength level here because I made a joke to the audience to Brian that I'm basically, he is me, like shrunken down three inches, or I'm him eight years later, just extended because we have very different bodies, but. What was your best overhead press with dumbbells? Dumbbells, 80 something for like six to eight, probably. Okay. And we talked about OHP with barbell. I think we had almost identical, right? I think. Yeah, it was like a 215 single and you were like a 225 or something like that. Yeah. And like 185 for like five. We talked about pull ups. I think we both did like 75 for eight or something like that, eight to 10. Our incline dumbbell bench was like identical. Our split squat <laughs> was identical. I mean, just like to, and I think our front squat, right? 315 for a few reps. Yep. Um, so it's just kind of goes to show that, like, you know, strength is really important. And we focus on progression, of course, but you can have people with the same strength that have vastly different bodies, even different as like, more different than ours are. You know, it's kind of crazy to see. Yeah, that was like the whole, like when we did our podcast and I was so curious about that relationship between hypertrophy and strength and whether like genetic potential of one leads to genetic potential for the other, et cetera, et cetera. And you and I are examples of like, well, I got this hypertrophy spectrum where like the muscle attachments, insertions and whatever it is, right. and then you got the same strength level as me, but just as a taller <laughs> human and yeah, um, it all just kind of appears a little bit different. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Now, Aaron, I don't think, well, actually, you know, before we get into that, for just the audience, um, let's just get an intro for you guys, because I'm talking to you guys, because I, I obviously, Brian, I've talked to you for, I don't even know now, but I feel like maybe over a year or something. Um, yeah, probably. And then, Aaron, you and I were introduced recently, but for anybody who maybe didn't see um, when I was on your podcast, can you just get a background on you guys, maybe how you guys know each other, uh, and what your fitness space background is? Go for it, Strager. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with how I know Brian. Um, I was a longtime member at Brian's CrossFit gym from like 2011, 2012 to like 2015, 2016, um, when we were in both in San Diego, California. So that's how I met Brian. And then just that was a massive part of my life for a very long time, which was really, really awesome. Just a great um, environment and um, was able to learn a lot from a bunch of cool people, including Brian. And then um, background on me, um, I'm a sports nutritionist primarily. Uh, I have a nutrition coaching program called the Metabolic Performance Protocol that I work with male clients in primarily and focus on a lot of the nutrition and lifestyle side of physique. So kind of my background into why I did, I did that and took that route obviously, especially as a male, like the training takes such a, it's, it's just much more sexy. Right. Um, but the protective is like, okay, where is there I already knew so many good people like Brian, right. Writing like really incredible programming. I wanted to find a different way that I could be very, very effective. So that's why I went the nutrition route lifestyle. And now it's just like a can of worms. So that's what kind of got me started. Now I'm spending a lot more time, a lot of my energy and focus learning more on like the functional nutrition side to better drive, um, you know, even more results from optimizing different parts of the metabolic metabolic system. Awesome. 
All right. And I mean, we're definitely going to dive into that. How about you, Brian? Yeah, totally. Uh, CrossFit gym for a while. That was kind of like my second or third level of fitness. You know, we can get into it, but went through the early years of training a certain way and then more into the bro split and then started a CrossFit gym in 2010 uh, with my best friend from college at the time. And um, Aaron was a member there for a while. We sent a bunch of teams to regionals. I coached a couple athletes to the CrossFit games, um, came out of CrossFit in kind of 2015, 16, 17 range. It was a gradual process. Started a couple companies, Evolve Training Systems, where I have general and I do some individual coaching through there. And then I partnered with a girl, uh, Lori Christine King, and we started Paragon Training Methods in 2018. And we have mostly general programs there with kind of like a individual feel through like the community Facebook group and video analysis and stuff like that. Awesome. So there's actually a couple comments that we had on the other podcast that I kind of want to delve into, not to steal from if we ever do a part two on your channel, but you know, I'm sure there's never some crossover. And uh, Brian, something that you and I have talked about, I think in DMs was that we talked about training splits and you had said, which I think if people, you know, you have like the CrossFit background. And I think a lot of people who watch either of our podcasts would look at that and say like, okay, so we're into programming and, and like specificity and things like that. But you have said before, well, if somebody was doing a bro split for, you know, a long period of time, over 10 years, would that actually make a big difference compared to somebody who had everything, what we call properly programmed and, and whatnot. And it's actually a, an argument I had with um, an acquaintance of mine, Steve, who's a bodybuilder as well. And uh, he's, he's a physician. And he has very good physique. And he's just done a bro split like forever. And obviously, he hasn't grown much in the last four or five years because he's kind of already maxed out, but he's got a great physique. And he said, so he actually is in um, physical medicine and rehabilitation. So he is like, you know, I want to be able to do something forever and not just for like a couple of years. And even if I programmed three times a week frequency right now, maybe I'd get better results short term, but I don't think it's going to make a big difference long term. And I've kind of come around more to that, that, you know, if my client says, Hey, I mean, I obviously want to get my clients the fastest results possible. Not always, but I mean, you know, usually, and um, in that case, I might really try to dial in. But if we're talking about over the course of a lifting career, I'm not really sure it matters too much. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I actually am reminded of, wasn't it you and Scott Stevenson and Cornelius talking about this relatively recently too? Yeah. Because um, I feel like there's, there's, of course, like a psychology to it, right? Like, like if you're just somebody that really doesn't enjoy training the same muscle group multiple times a week and you'd rather just go in and just destroy it and move on. Like that's kind of a, your prerogative thing, especially if you're somebody that doesn't need more than 10 sets per muscle group per week. Right. Cause if the research is pretty, pretty, it states pretty obviously that anything over 10 sets is, you know, going to turn into less effective volume than it would be if you stay under 10, which is probably the number one rationalization that I would see for why you would need a two times a week frequency, because most people's volume needs are bigger than that. Mm -hmm. um, I still kind of fall on the side of thinking that if you had 10 sets a week as your uh, maximum adaptive volume, if you want to put it that way, that still splitting it into two sets of two sessions of five would probably still be more advantageous. And I just think about like my own quad training or back training or, or any muscle group really, but like, man, five sets of quads and like, I need 10 sets a week, like doing those five sets after the first five sets just seems kind of unnecessary. So, um, I think that there's that aspect. 
And then looking at the bro split side, though, like you have connective tissue potentially. Like I think Scott may have brought that up, mm. that that's something that now you only hit once a week instead of having to, to do it twice a week. So I think that there's an argument there too. Um, but like you kind of alluded to, man, over the course of your lifetime, I don't know that 15 years of a hard bro split training would keep you from reaching the same genetic peak that maybe you would get from 15 years of doing it evidence-based. Right. Yep. How about you, Aaron? Yeah, I'm going to echo a lot of the things that Brian said there. Uh, the psychological aspect of it and what you actually want to do is a, is a big underrepresented or undervalued aspect, I think. Because if it's not practical for you, then you may not end up actually doing it long-term, right? So it's a massive like, consideration to make. Um, I'm, I agree. Like I, I did the bro splits in college and, you know, it, it kind of burned me out. I was really... I just realistically, I'm not going to go in and have an arm day. I'm not going to go in and just do arms. You know, mm -hmm. I just, it doesn't interest me in that regard. So splitting the volume up across multiple days, even equating volume, I just found is a much more realistic approach for myself. And I know a lot of people feel that way. And it's been really cool that the kind of evidence-based community and, and the current research has shifted towards that, towards like, you know, twice training weekly or something or even more. Um, so I think, again, my, my, my bottom line is I think the preference and individual preference and real practicality of you actually accomplishing it and performing it is what is going to be the biggest driver there. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like you were saying, Brian, that like even like 10 sets seems like a lot in one session. And I guess it's been a long time that I've been doing lower volume and I don't really even think about it now as lower volume. Cause like, like for instance, my workout tomorrow is upper body. So it's still going to be like 18 to 20 sets, like work sets, too pretty close to failure and i mean I, i'd like to do that but if i was there any if i was doing any more volume than one day it would just take me forever so then yeah you probably would need to split it up in a different way um but even when i because i actually think bro splits can be fun it's, it's been a while since i've trained that way but i think they can be fun but even when i was doing them i mean it might be like three sets first chest exercise and then maybe like two sets and two sets or something like that you know so you're looking at seven but like I just never related to people who are doing like 16 to 20 sets in one session for chest. It's like how many pressing and fly movements can you do in one day, especially if you're going even close to failure. I mean, I guess, and, and that's probably where my bias lies, right? Like I, I push intensity pretty high. So I guess if I was doing three RIR and three RIR and then three R like, you know, but even that just sounds incredibly boring to me, but <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I did, I did the whole like, you know, 20 sets in one session per muscle group thing. And I remember consistently getting like a small shoulder tweak and it would always happen in like the last five sets of chest day. Mm -hmm. And it's cause like my chest is just so fatigued by the end of it that there's really like nothing happening there. Right. And so the shoulders are taking over whatever movement I'm doing, whether it's like a dip or a fly or an incline press, which were kind of typical movements I'd have toward the end, like. I just always ended up hurting myself. And this was even coming right out of CrossFit, like ladder into my years before I kind of fell into like some of the RP and, and Steve Hall stuff. Um, and I, ju I just remember seeing the whole research about the 10 sets in a session being the most really that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I began implementing that, the quality of the work that I was doing just skyrocketed. And I think that like just qu the quality that you can put in when you're doing less, you don't hold anything back. Your mind muscle connection is much better. And what I've realized is that I can get like the best pump that I need from 
the second set of a movement. Like sometimes it's the first set. Like sometimes I'm even warming up and I'm like, whoa, my biceps are pumped mm. right now. It's a warm up yeah. set, right? But like so usually it's like this first, second set sometimes. But I don't know what I was doing. Like I remember feeling that pump and just being like, did I really just train like through this and continue it? And then it went away. And then I don't really know right. what's happening after that. Yeah, no, it's a lot. I mean, both of you kind of talked about like the mindset of it. And I think, I guess if your mindset it, it, like all of us, I think focus on progression, but if you're kind of still like new to this and maybe you're thinking like, well, it's just about crushing the muscle, then yeah, maybe you think that like, this is doing it and wow, it's my biceps are so fatigued. But I think when you shift to like, no, we're looking at like, not just this session, but the next one in a year from now, and once you start doing more than like, I don't know, six sets, maybe for biceps or something like that, it's just like, I mean, I was even saying before chest, but yeah, once you ta start talking about like isolation exercises, it's just like, I mean, there's really only so many variations, you know? Yeah, there's only so many movement patterns you can train, right, for a specific body part. The yeah. one thing that's always been really interesting for me is when people are doing, like, the, a lot of volume per body part on, like, one day is your output goes drops off so hard after, like, let's say maybe that second exercise, you know? Mm -hmm. if, if it's chest and you're doing, like, a an inclined barbell and then you do some sort of fly and then you go to like maybe a flat dumbbell for that third exercise, like you're using at least like a, a decrease in like 30 to 40% is if you were fresh. Yeah. And it's, I'm just hard pressed to believe that you're actually getting like really quality effective one well, movement pattern out of it, but like contractions and stuff because the, the muscles already so fatigued. Yeah. I, I will say, I guess in defense of that to a small degree is that it does seem so certainly anytime I've moved like a primary exercise from like first to second, I'm immediately significantly weaker, right? But over time, you know, I kind of get used to it in that position. If I ever move it back to number one, it hasn't gotten proportionally stronger. It only works like a one way, but my body does seem to get used to it. And honestly, like my, I set like a personal best for bench press recently. And that was actually after shoulder pressing. And I find that like, for me, I don't know if it's just how, my shoulders and everything are warming up but i actually feel like it goes smoother for me just you know one example where i, I actually like bench pressing now after shoulder pressing um <clears throat> excuse me, now this is kind of like lower rep shoulder pressing i'm doing like three sets of five right so it's not if i were to do like three sets of 20 i think i'd probably just be torched um but i do think and and this is and i don't know how you guys feel about this but like for exercises that as i've gotten a little bit older i have to be a little more cautious with I actually like to throw them in at the very end. Like I just incorporated leg press again. And I do that after like leg extensions, leg curls, I actually put it at the end there and it's not a ton of weight, but now it's way harder to do. And I just feel much less injury potential with that. Yeah. Putting, putting movements that scare you or that like the, the higher injury potential piece a little bit later. And it almost is like an ego piece as well. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I don't have to push this movement as hard because of where I placed it. Yeah. So I had to go through like a period like that with hip hinging in general, because coming from CrossFit, I had this association of like, I can deadlift over 500 pounds, but my deadlift over 500 pounds wasn't like a good looking deadlift. Mm. So to make sure that I was hitting the right muscles and hip hinging properly, when I started transitioning into like the stiff leg deadlift and RDL variations, I initially actually like I, I went up to like, you know, 315 for sets of 10 and it, it didn't look good. Like it, it looked like the deadlifts that I was doing in CrossFit back in those mm. days. So I had to basically assess my ego and be like, okay, I am unable right now in this moment to do 
RDLs properly and just drop the weight to 225. So I'm going to put them at the end of the leg session, use 185 or 225 and actually right. get the stimulus I'm supposed yeah. to get from it, build the proper muscles and work from there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's something that I've recently like doing a lot is moving like today, for example, right? I had leg extensions and leg curls before hack squats. And then I can use less weight on the hack squat and my legs are already a little bit fatigued. So I can really just focus on like movement quality, full deep range of motion instead. And it still gives me like just as gnarly of a stimulus, but at less weight, easier on my joints, especially like right now I'm training legs three days a week. So that was a big concern of mine was my knees. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they feel great, which is awesome. Cause I was really concerned. Yeah, no, that, that is awesome. And, and Brian, I kind of, first I thought you meant like you have to check your ego, which you, you do, but I think also you were saying how, like in a way it takes the ego out of it because you know it's not going to be as strong. So you can kind of like reset your form and everything, which is great. Cause I mean, I, even after all this time have a hard time where I'm like, you know what, I really need to reset my form on this exercise and just, and, and we all know that if, if you really like slow down the movement or really concentrate on like the, you know, the, if you want to say mind muscle connection and all that, you can make a weight that's like 60% of what you were using really hard <laughs> it's kind of like like sometimes you'll do it like geez like maybe i shouldn't be going so heavy and it, it creeps up on you right if you're focused on progression like sometimes i'm maybe even like too focused on progression and you know i'm like okay incorporating leg curls i'm going real slow and by week 20 i'm like eh, this this isn't the form i started with you know yeah no i video myself like literally at least one set from every movement that i do throughout the week and uh, that that tool has been awesome because like, especially with hip hinges, and that's just like a big one for me. Like I have, su I had such an ego with it, right? Mm. That I have this tendency to get a little bit of a posterior pelvic tilt when I'm, when I'm doing heavy hip hinging. And not that that's bad necessarily, but I think that what it does is it makes it easier for me to lose a little bit of lumbar position mm. um, when the weights, when I struggle through that kind of concentric. So I've been really focused not on eliminating the posterior pelvic tilt, but in making sure that I really am going to like the depth of the, of the limit of my hamstrings and, and hip hinging ability so that I'm not just like butt going back and then torso continuing to, to fall. Um, but filming it from an angle that really allows me to see what my low back is doing. So I can make sure that the first thing that moves is that my chest is rising and that hinge is occurring instead of, even if it's a small bit of back flexion that takes place, like really having to hold myself accountable and yeah. it's difficult. Aaron, you mentioned you're training like three times a week now, or are you just trying to build up like from a hypertrophy standpoint or why are you doing that? Yeah, basically, um, I have a coach right now and, you know, we've been working together since end of August or end of July for the second time, you know, and he basically was like, listen, we need to get those legs up. Like everything else is great. You're like your legs are severely lacking. Um, yeah. we just need to, um, do that. And it's been a goal of mine for a couple of years. Uh, but this is the first time where, you know, and this is something, you know, you and I and Brian have talked about a little bit, like a specialization type cycle where I've always kind of yeah. wanted to do it, but I've had those fear of like, oh, well, I'm not getting as much volume in my chest or back as I, you know, normally would. And those might not be progressing, but this right. is the first time where I've like fully bought in and I'm like, I'm okay if my like back and shoulders stay exactly where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty normal. They, they're okay. You know, I'm okay with that, but like my legs have been I've been talking about growing them for like two years now and yeah. like I'm, it's time to finally start doing it. And they are, it's, it's been pretty sweet, but I mean, the, the hardest part is that, I mean, training legs three days a week is just brutal from yeah. like a psychological standpoint. They're just much more challenging days. Yeah. Well, I just, so I did sprints Thursday, legs and sprints yesterday and then sprints today, like 
10 minutes before this podcast. So <laughs> my heart, I feel like a little weak right now, <laughs> uh, which by the way, anybody listening, I usually would not recommend hit three times in a row. I just, for certain reasons, I was doing it. Um, so Aaron, I mean, and I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Brian. I was like, you guys got to take measurements because I love the pictures that Brian just posted <laughs> some good pictures on what he's changing. Um, and I think it's great. I just measurements to me and measurements aren't flawless either. Right. I mean, if we're talking bodybuilding. It's how do they look? And, and I totally get that. I just think it's very hard to take the exact same angle, the exact same lighting, everything exactly the same. Um, and, and sometimes it's both ways. Pictures can be really deceiving and look like more progress has happened, but they can also be really deceiving and make it look like no progress has happened. Um, you know, I just kind of have a physique where in certain poses, I mean, I have two pictures that are like 20 pounds of muscle apart, like when I was like years and years ago. And you can see there's progress, but on me, it just doesn't show in these pictures that much. Where some people, they put on five pounds, it's like a, a transformation, right? Depending on muscle shape and all these things. So, um, I just love to see measurements. So just, you know, it, I don't know if you've taken them already or not, but I have from when I started, um, yeah. I have the tape in the closet somewhere, but it was one of the things that when we moved, it just hasn't, um, been, I just, yeah, I, I think, it think out, it's but... just one good thing. Legs yeah. are also hard to measure because it's like to get the exact, you know, biceps, you got that peak. It's right there. I've always found it hard to get the exact same spot on legs. You know, mm -hmm. when I was like 14, I actually took a pen, <laughs> just a <put> line <laughs> there. And I was just like, all right, it's going to stay there. The tattoo there. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just real quick on that again, Aaron. So what are you doing? Differently? Is it just the frequency or are you just focus on getting stronger? Like what are you doing to actually specifically bring them up? So frequency, frequency and volume, like okay. volume is, um, we do have one day is a little bit lower. It's like a power type day. Reps are all like six to eight, um, rep range somewhere up, uh, up at 10. And that's, that's nice. Uh, cause it's not like a very, it's like a fun day. I get to go and lift a little bit heavier, but it's like lower volume. It's not like nauseating at all. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's Monday. And then on, let's think then Wednesday, I have like a hypertrophy day and that's like a little bit more higher twelves. Um, 15s, everything's mostly in the 12 to 15 rep range. And that is, um, that day is challenging, right? So it's like fifth, four sets of 15, you know, heels elevated back squat. Um, yeah. That's like, and that's how it starts, right? And that's mm -hmm. like, a, you know, a punch in the guts, right? From the first start. And it's a lower, I don't do that many exercises on that day specifically because of that. And then I have, um, that's on Wednesday. And then I don't have any legs Thursday or Friday. And then Saturday, is basically just a bunch of supersets. So it's like supersets, leg, leg extensions, leg curls, a lot more higher reps in the twenties and then sets of 15 on the hack squat. So it's really pushing like frequency and volume. Um, are you I mean, in the camp of keeping a lot of reps in the tank or how hard are you pushing? So everything usually about two, one to two RIR. Um, the leg supersets day is the day I kind of like open it up. And like today I, I failed a couple things early, um, but I did go up and wait this week. So okay. like I got like, you know, instead of 20 on my last set of the leg curls, I only got 17, but I was mm -hmm. on five pounds from last week. Gotcha. So um, those ones are, are a little bit harder, um, pushing it a little bit. But the one thing I did want to say is I'm also eating like 4,000 calories per day and then, you know, 570 grams of carbs. So it's wow. <laughs> a lot of food to support, you know, that volume of training legs yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I definitely want to delve into the nutrition because there were some comments you made before. Um, but do you guys believe that there's kind of like a common sentiment in bodybuilding that, um, you know, if you have like upper body, it's kind of more amenable to changing. 
that lower body seems to be a little bit more genetically determined that like for some people they just have it right it's like you know i'm sure you guys saw the the post of my cousin right with his legs and and that comparison um and people would be like i don't even know if you said this but some people messaged me and they were like well he's got to play football right well he's done this i'm like look i know this kid very well he does body weight squats every once in a while that's it right and he's just got these huge legs and some people, um, and I don't think your legs look bad, but I mean, certainly your upper body is bigger, you know, proportionally than your lower body. Um, it just seems like some people have a much harder time building legs. And, and I guess a big confounding variable is a lot of people just don't train legs as hard, right? So, I mean, that's, that's a huge variable too. I agree. I, I was one of those people who, you know, was reading, you know, T Nation back in like the mid, late 2000s and stuff. Yeah. And so, All you need to do is squat heavy. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll mm-hmm. squat heavy. And I did that for a long time, but they just never grew. Yeah. Um, and I think it's some of it's, you know, all of us are a little bit taller and longer limb lengths. It's, it's harder to get in that mechanically advantageous position and less like, especially for a strength movement, right? So like me squatting for strength and me squatting for hypertrophy, I will change what I'm doing a little bit for mm-hmm. force production. Right. Um, because we were, you know, in CrossFit and then I was in Olympic weightlifting and stuff like that. I squatted differently. That would be allow me to move weight in my glutes and, you know, lower back and hips are much stronger than my quad. So that would always kind of take over. So I, th- I think a lot, that was a large portion of it. And too, like training legs is just objectively harder. It's yeah. not, I mean, it's, I enjoy it, but it's, I get, you know, I get sick sometimes after I get yeah. sick after shoulders or back or anything like that. I feel great. Right. I feel like I'm like, Oh man, I'm fucking huge. This is great. After <laughs> legs, like I'm like shaking, walking down the street yeah. and stuff. And I just want to go home and lay on the floor. No pump to show off. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it's like, it's like twofold. Yeah. I I echo what Aaron said. Basically the first three quarters or more of my uh, training life was spent trying to move weight from point A to point B and not really even thinking about how it got there. It was just get it there as quickly and as fast as possible. Um, And that just wasn't great way for me to build legs. It's a great way for some people to build legs. Like I have plenty of friends that, never did bodybuilding and have awful upper bodies. Anders is a great example, Aaron. Um, and, and he has, has really big legs. Like he just put a post on his story challenging my quad growth post that I made being yeah. like, check my legs out. Right. And like, and he, he has great out, legs. He doesn't work out that much. He, he does. He just, he does like, uh, you know, 20 minute EMOMs and CrossFit and, you know, he'll squat 265 for 10, a couple times, like mm. once a week or something like that. But like he just has good legs, you know. So he yeah. played hockey growing up. He used his legs a lot. They grew. He squatted a lot when he was younger. Yeah. And again, you and I have talked about this whole thing of like, does it really matter what you did when you were younger? And yeah, I have yeah, this yeah. theory that like I'm good at weighted pull-ups because I thought right. weighted pull-ups were so cool back in the day. And like that's probably not true, but um he squatted a lot and he has big legs and I'm really good at pull-ups and I used to do them a lot. So, yeah. you know, N of two. Yeah. Well, no, that <laughs> we can we can talk about that because it's it's funny. Cause a lot of people are like that, right? I had a friend in college and he, he was like, well, I think I have really big calves because I used to walk on my toes as a kid. And it's like, dude, like I literally, I mean, people like a lot of people don't know like the crazy stuff I've done to try to get like anything out of my growth. So my entire freshman year of college, I was on the ninth floor and it was like, you know, like double staircase each floor. Every time I would go anywhere, I would walk all the way up and down on my tiptoes every single time just to see and it made zero difference right and so i and i do think i have some of the more stubborn calves so it's not to say that something that didn't work for me wouldn't work for somebody else but like 
I, I've done 100 rep cab workouts daily. I've done everything you could imagine and nothing really mattered. But to your point about like the hockey, it's like, you know, like a lot of things. Well, were you better at hockey? Like were your legs growing because you were a hockey player or were you actually really good on skates and everything because you had this development in your legs, right? Um, maybe for you, you had a naturally good back. Like I, I have pictures when I just started working out and I remember my dad, when I was like 14 and we were on the beach commenting to his friend about my back. Right. But like, I actually grew up doing pushups. I never did pull-ups ever. Right. But my chest is proportionally like muscularly a weak point for me compared to my back. But like, you know, it's a pretty significant difference. I'd say maybe a weak point versus a strong point. Um, so I, I tend to think people gravitate towards what they're good at. And then you say, wow, like you're so strong at this. It's like, and, and you know, you just rationalize that, well, it's because of that. When I, I think the order is actually reversed a lot of times. Same thing with sports, right? You know, are you, you playing basketball didn't make you tall. You just happen to be seven feet tall, you know? So, yeah. no, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point because I always sucked at bench press. And so I was always like, you know, fuck the barbell. Like I'm never going to barbell bench because I'm just so bad at it. Right. Yeah. And I swear over the last 23 years of lifting, I think I've barbell benched for two years consistently, yeah. um, which I told you in DM actually, but, right. uh, but pull like pull-ups and rows have always been movements that like just worked for me. Like I was always strong at them. People were always impressed. I could row 225 before any of my friends could, but I was still like benching 135, you know? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, uh, another point on that is like, people will ask me, and again, I'm not saying I have this amazing back, but proportionally I have a good back and it's like, Oh, what's your routine? Pull-ups and rows. Like I don't, I don't get weird with it. Like I never had to, right. It was just, that's just what worked for me. But like other muscles, I'll try, you know, like chest, I've tried like so many variations and, and some do work better than others. I'm not trying to say it doesn't make a difference, but um, that's why I asked Aaron, maybe if you were incorporating, if it was just a volume thing or you had to incorporate maybe some new exercises that you felt hit it better than, you know, whatever. But it sounds like you kind of had that process earlier. Yeah, I, that's one thing, not to kind of derail the conversation, but in the last maybe like nine, 10, 11 months, picking exercises that I can feel really, really well for the target muscle group. Right. Yeah. So um, for example, right, like I love, I love a hack squat. Um, I think it's really, really great, especially for me, because like I said before my back overpowers, like my, my, you know, freestanding squats. Um, so the, the hack squat kind of takes that apart. But if I am using a hack squat where like based on my levers and positions, I can't get into a good position. I'm not going to use it. It's like the gym I was at before we came to Mexico here had like one of those hack squats where it just like wasn't working. Like my feet, I just couldn't get in that position. I'm like, I'm not going to use it. I'm just going to use like the Smith machine or, or as like a, as a replacement or something like that. And I'm a big proponent of like either changing how you perform a movement to make it fit your, you know, levers and, and how your anatomy is or finding a better exercise. Yeah. That was an argument I had with somebody who, um, he's a kind of a big name in the industry, but I, I said like, he was trying to tell me, we we're talking about exercise variation. And he was like, no, like, you know, once you've maxed this one out and then go to this one and then go to this one and like all these different variations. And he's telling me how he's still progressing because he's doing this. And the guy's like, I don't know, 45, 50 years old. And it's like, you're not, to me, switching to a new exercise and then gaining strength on exercise is not inherent progression, right? Because there's a huge period of time where you just have this neural adaptation and you're getting better at the exercise. So I am for exercise variation. But to me, I'm like, I think, there are a lot of examples yourself, probably myself, all of us at times where the standard exercises might not be best for you. 
and finding the right exercises for you is actually really important, right? Especially if you have like unusual levers and stuff like that. But in my opinion, once you've found those, depending on the muscle group, three to five exercises that are like really good for you, I'm not sure I see a huge advantage to then saying, okay, now switch it up with another five exercises and another five. Like to me, you're going to work the muscle well for you with your, you know, your um, limb lengths and things like that. And then I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not like huge on variation beyond that point. Aaron and I were just talking about this on our episode we did yesterday, the day before the neural adaptation piece. Mm -hmm. And we both kind of feel that this like process of neural adaptation to a movement is like really long, like yeah. way longer than people give you credit for. Like I've heard someone say that you could just change in a barbell curl if you haven't done a barbell curl for three months and that you would just be right where you left off and it would be all good. Yeah. But like I've, I was just saying on our podcast, like I feel like I can go from 95 to 115 just and as the sets are equally difficult 95 for 10 and then 100 for 100 105 110 115 before i actually feel like okay now my neural adaptations have subsided and that's like you know five weeks of training on something like a squat or a more compound movement it could take eight to ten weeks for me to really feel like okay i'm at a point now where it's actually hard to progress and i'm really yeah. fighting for each rep yeah um and that's actually something I was talking with. Uh, I had Brad Loomis and Jeff Alberts on a couple months ago, and we were talking about the barbell curl. And I think Jeff was saying, he's like, yeah, well, you know, like I better be able after 30 years, be able to, you know, curl this like I did, you know, whatever, like I'm, I'm so used to it. And I told him, I said, I don't, I don't know if I really believe that that's true for me. And, and you're talking about like really basic movement, right? Like a barbell curl. But I reincorporate when the shutdowns happened, I had to work out back in my parents' house and I still have my like stuff from high school there. And I was doing barbell curls and like while dieting the whole time I was gaining like, and I was doing three sets and at least one of those sets would gain a rep here and there. Obviously after 15 years and dieting, I'm not gaining muscle in my biceps, but I was still readapting to doing it. Now keep in mind that when I was, you know, like in dental school, I was doing like 135 for like eight reps on curls, you know, at the end of my workout right now, obviously this is not like the super strict form, you know, but like, that's what I was doing. So during this cut, I'm doing like, you know, 70 pounds for three sets of 12 or something like that. So these are all things I've done before, but within that period, I got stronger. And, and I definitely agree that I think the neural adaptation for a totally new exercise could be months and months, you know, for sure. If you've never done it before. So um, last thing I'll comment on the legs is my, my next experiment right now. So, um, you know, I, I had the experiment where I didn't train my left calf for mm. a whole year. Still haven't, by the way. And, and I'm, I'm probably just not going to. Like, I'll just keep this experiment going. Like, why not? Um, no difference, you know, ever. And then I'm now doing my left. My, my left bicep has always been smaller. And it almost seems shaped different. Like, some people would say, um, well, because, like, you're using your right. You're, I'm right-handed, so you're using it for all these things but I am so nuts with this stuff that I have become like ambidextrous by ju just trying to use my left hand. So I brush my teeth with my left hand. Now mm -hmm. I like put stuff away with my left hand. Like that's the level I've taken it. And it still stays about half an inch smaller than my right. So again, I don't know if it's the shape or what. Um, but I recently just incorporated leg press again, just for my left leg. And now we're three weeks into that. So I'm, I'm probably going to do that for a while and see if it makes any difference. Um, because like you, Aaron, my upper body is definitely better than my lower. And even though I've gotten quite strong on my lower, and I'm interested to see, like, because I have done all that stuff for legs. I, I have done 
six times a week frequency where I was doing Bulgarian training. Now that was squats, but um, even with non-squat exercises, I've done three times per week and they've always just kind of lagged. So part of me was a little like demotivated, like, is it going to make any difference? But I'm curious to see if I just focus on like left leg for a while, is, am I actually, and I took, obviously I took the measurements and everything. So, so we'll see what happens. That's awesome. I'm yeah. super into that experiment. <laughs> when I was uh, playing basketball as a youngster, my coach basically told me to do everything with my left hand. And I started doing the same thing, like dialing the phone, brushing the teeth, carrying the groceries, all these yeah. things. And a lot of these habits have stayed now. And I still feel like visually my left arm is, is definitely smaller. Like any photograph that I ever take is probably going to be my right arm. <laughs> left. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why that is. I, I mean, unless it's like, you know, going back to like during development, maybe, um, which maybe would be the good, the good next topic is, is, you know, do things we do as, I mean, we talked about a little bit with like the pull-ups and whatnot, but I mean, you know, we, everybody knows that if you don't start a sport until later, you're at a huge disadvantage, right? I mean, the best players in the world of almost any sport started when they were young, right? I mean, other than like maybe some like really niche sports. So, um, could it be that like we, from zero to you know, whatever, 20, we both just use our right hands for everything that there was a difference in development there. I don't know. And um, Aaron, I know you said you felt like football in your younger years really gave you an advantage. And we kind of talked about like, I didn't feel that way, but that I was dieting a lot when I was young. And you kind of had this bulking phase throughout your entire, um, all of puberty, really, right? It's the perma, perma high school bulk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it, I could, I'm definitely open to the idea that that could make a difference for sure. I don't know if you want to expand on anything on like either of your experiences with that, um, with the football stuff. I mean, did you feel like it, it's so hard to tell, right? Cause obviously it's not a controlled trial. We don't know like what you would have looked like otherwise, mm -hmm. but I, it seems like that probably gave you a pretty good base. I think so. Um, I think what it did is it gave me, it was like environment I think was really, really good. And it was a very positive environment for me. Um, good way to spend my time right it was very driven and then when you put a lot of that you know even in this day right when you put a lot of like males together in a room and of some sort of like physical type capacity you get that like competition that comes out right and i mean you know 15 16 17 year old high school kids where hormones are all pumping and things like that it's, it was just a wild environment and you know as you you know want to start lifting because you think girls are going to care and all that shit it was I don't know. I think it was, I don't know if I would have, my life would have turned out this way without that, because I don't know if yep. I would have, if I, you know, when you're younger, you're just so impressionable. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, I mean, I loved it. I would go home, you know, and, and then after I would train, you know, and this was really dumb, but I would go to the, I would train for like an hour and a half after, after school, go home, you know, eat dinner. And then we had like some weights in the basement and I would go back down to the basement after, after dinner wow. and train some more. Um, were you, and, but did you I, stay relatively lean or were you like pretty bulked up? I would say probably like 20, maybe like 21, 22. Uh -huh. um, and it, that really didn't hit until probably going into my senior year of football when I, I went in at like 215 at only, you know, five foot 11. Wow. Um, so that was like the year where, you know, I think I just kind of outpaced it because going into my junior year, I was only in the like, like high 180s. Okay. Um, mid high one eighties going into that football season. And then I put on like another 20 some pounds going into my senior year. And that was like, I was probably like low, you know, low twenties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I think, cause a lot of the things that we did, right. We, we, they had us do some dumb stuff too. Like we would right. do dips at least four days per week, like all the time. 
Wow. My triceps are pretty big comparatively. And like, I really don't like doing arms that much because I kind of feel like I don't have to, because like, yeah. if I, if I keep training them, they're just going to outpace other, everything else. And then I'm going to kind of look strange. Yeah. Um, but the things that we did a lot of, like, are just kind of bigger on me now. And even though I don't train them that much. Yeah. Um, that, that was definitely one of the dumbest things I did. I mean, I, again, would it make a difference now? I tend to think not um, because there are so many examples where you have somebody who didn't start until like they were 18 plus lifting and, and they look pretty good. And like I said, my brother was pretty close to my size within like four or five years of lifting. Now he wrestled in, in high school like I did, but um, I was, well, okay. So I guess that's maybe a way to say, it. I don't know if it would have made a huge difference to have stayed in a surplus, but I very well may have hurt myself by the chronic deficit. I mean, cause I probably spent four months a year throughout high school in a significant deficit to the point, I mean, there was a year I was on the swim team and I would get up, do cardio, go to school, have a three hour swim practice, come home and then work out. And I mean, it was just so dumb, but I was so set on having abs, you know, like that was like all I cared about then. And I'd get to like 1.30 at my height, at the time, maybe I was like 5'11" and still not have abs you know i just it just wasn't in the cards for me at that age and so i was just killing myself and it, it very well may have you know stunted something you know maybe i'd be six two now instead of six one i don't know <laughs> i echo a lot of the sentiments that you're speaking about regarding kind of the way that you were in high school yeah. um i started lifting at five two and 135 pounds okay. so you were like five eleven, and we were like the same way yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> but i i had a uh, this kid at school in ninth grade picked a fight with me and called me the Pillsbury Doughboy because I mean I wasn't <laughs> fat but I was like I was five two one thirty five like I was just had a baby fat on me I, I hadn't hit puberty yet all the things and so I always kind of had this this image of like okay I'm a little I was a little chunky I needed to to be lean and you know that would both help my basketball of course make me in better shape but it would also impress the girls. Um, and so I did the same thing, man. I would be up and if we didn't have a basketball practice in the morning, which we had a couple times a week, then I would get up and do AM fasted cardio. And then I would eat my like six meals a day that would be like, you know, a quarter pound of roasted turkey and like a piece of whole wheat bread and an apple and like a bag of carrots or something like that. And that was like what I did six times a day for my meals. And then there would be basketball practices in there and I would be working out two to three times a week. And like, it was all in this pursuit of being lean and having abs, which was- yeah the holy grail at that point. Right. So I graduated high school at 5'10", 170. So I don't even know how much of that gain was was muscle, how much of it was just bone structure as right, I got right. bigger. Um, but yeah, 5'10", 170. And then it wasn't until college where I gained 30 pounds in like four months oh, and wow. just ate everything and lifted everything that I finally kind of became a man. Like it almost happened yeah. in like this four month period. Wow. That's great. Yeah. It's hard to say, like, I, you know, I like to say like, well, you know, even if I'm not super impressive by like, you know, internet standards, I put on probably 50 pounds of lean body mass, um, at the same body fat compared to when I started, but you know, I'm comparing to, I started at like 13 years old. So, you know, how much of that was just like bone and organ weight and things like that. Right. So you were five ten. you said five eleven at 13. So uh, no, when I was 14, so my freshman year, I was 5'11 and 130 pounds. Yeah. I mean, if I show you pictures, maybe I'll like put a picture in here, but like when I was on the swim team um, and I was, I mean, I was so skinny, but I, like I said, I, 
I didn't know how to define it, but I knew there was a difference between skinny and like lean. Like I remember thinking like I'm the skinniest kid in my class or right, a small like middle school, but I, I still didn't have abs and that drove me nuts. Like it's just, it just wasn't happening. And then like for years and years, I'm like, I don't blame myself for that age because like based on the information that I had, I thought it was totally possible. And I saw people in my age group who had it and I was like, why wouldn't I be able to do it? But knowing what I know now, it just, just wasn't in the cards, you know? And, and especially at that age, I mean, it's one thing to do it you know, it's, it's hard maybe for me to diet down now and, and get like really good abs, but I can do it. And there's not like a big detriment to it. But as a 14 year old, like it was just, it was just not good. And, and like, I was just not in a good place, I think like psychologically with it all and, and everything like that. And so um, I, I feel for those people who, you know, maybe they have, I have a client, I have a couple clients who like, you know, you're, they're in this cycle and they're not even like wrong, you know, it's like they, they do have love handles, but it's like you, you do, I see what you're saying, but you also are so skinny and you have this disordered eating and like, you're like five steps away from the point where I feel comfortable dieting you down to get really lean. There's like so much to work on in between that. And it's very hard to tell somebody that who has this goal of like, no, but this is what I want, you know? Yeah, for sure. Do you train abs now? Um, dude, I haven't trained abs since I was like, probably off 14. So. I don't really train them either. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just don't like them. I don't like the feeling. How, and then sometimes they cramp up yeah, you're like yeah. walking home and your abs yep. cramp up. That's awful. Oh I, yeah. No, I've definitely, <laughs> I've had some almost paralyzing cramps during, um, uh, extracurricular activities I'll say. And it's like, oh my God, like I need to stop <laughs> right now. It can get pretty bad. So yeah. That's funny. The one thing yeah. I will say I do, if I do abs, ab wheel. I don't hate doing the ab wheel, mm. but most other things, you know, I, I'd probably be okay on the record going saying I hate doing. Yeah. And also like they've kind of been like, I have blockier abs. So like, I mean, if you look at like my dieting pictures, my abs are actually like pretty decent and they're not like, I don't have like right now, I don't have like relaxed abs, but I'd have to be, I think quite lean for that. But the other thing is I do have a naturally wider waist and there's debate as to like, you know, like people say, Oh, or like our deadlifts going to widen your waist and things like that. Um, one, I do feel like I had pretty strong core just from the other exercises I do. Um, but two, I, I really don't want my waist any wider than it is. I mean, even when I'm quite lean, I still have like a 32 inch waist, whereas some people, when they get really lean, they're going to, they're like, 30, 29. I mean, do you guys know what you're at the navel, what your waistline is? Not a clue. No. Any idea, Brian? I don't, but I, I know for sure that I have a blockier waist as well. Um, yeah. Like when I'm sitting around the body weight that I am right now, uh, you know, low, one, low to mid 190s, mm -hmm. I wear 34 pants. And yeah. I mean, I need to do the belt loop and make it a little bit tighter. Yeah. But like, I don't know. That, that's all I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm saying I wear 34 pants, but I, I know I do have like a kind of a small waist compared. Yeah. You definitely do have a, a small waist, Aaron. So, um, yeah, it's, it's another interesting thing to see like, like different body types that you'll see. Even like, um, who was I talking about this about? I think it was, I'm totally blanking, but it was like recently we were having a conversation of like different people from even like from like different countries and like ethnicities have different like on average like different structures and you'll see that like a guy who's like icelandic obviously versus like you know like um thailand or something obviously that's like two really extremes mm -hmm. but it's not just the size of the body it's like structurally 
there's different proportions you see sometimes. You tend to see different trends, you know, which I, I've always found kind of like the anthropometric aspect of it yeah. kind of interesting. I agree. I think that's one thing I've noticed with you know, a lot of my travels. So I've been, you know, I've lived majoritively, the majority of the time outside the U.S. for the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, and then in one thing that's cool is you get to see people from all over, you know, yeah. and that's like some of the, the, the Northern European people, like, I mean, the women, they're like my size, you know, <laughs> and they're, I mean, not, and not in like a, a negative connotation at all, but they're just like super tall. They're like six foot tall and it's like yeah. kind of common and it's yeah. just really kind of wild that they're, um, people just are, you know, anthropometrically different, you know, different anatomical makes up makeups. It's pretty, uh, pretty wild to see. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to get a little bit into the nutrition side. Um, how are you guys on time? I know you guys have some, some nap time. Good for right now. The kid's still sleeping. <laughs> okay. Um, Aaron, you have kids too? No. Oh my God. Yeah, okay. no. All, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, I think last time when we were talking and Aaron, you said one of the biggest differences for you was like really dialing in nutrition. And um, I, I guess, again, going back to like when we were all kind of younger and like obsessed with certain things and you kind of learn other things. And I was like very neurotic with every nutritional thing you could think of, like the timing, the amount of meals, I mean, just everything. Um, and the, the first big, I guess, revelation I had was when I went to college and between my freshman and sophomore year, I started intermittent fasting. I was really hesitant to do it because I was like, well, no, I need protein like every two hours. And for me, I just really didn't find a difference. Now, I will say, and I said this on a Q&A recently, if somebody said to me, I want to put the maximum amount of muscle on in a year, would I have them intermittent fast? I wouldn't. But that's really not based on my experience. That's just like kind of thinking mechanistically, it's probably better to have it. But my personal experience was it really didn't hurt my muscle growth at all. And, and I'm much less concerned now with with timing, I just like get sufficient protein, calories. When we're dieting, I look a little bit more into specific, uh, maybe carbon fat ratios. But I, beyond that, I just haven't found huge differences. But it sounds like to you, Aaron, you, I mean, obviously, you, you have a nutritional background. Um, it sounds like it's a big thing for you. So maybe we have some differences there in our thoughts. Yeah, one big caveat, I want to make sure that we kind of put together there is like, the closer you get to your goal, the more important the nuance becomes. Mm -hmm. So if you're just like someone who's like, let's say you're male, you're, I don't know, 23% body fat or something like that. And you're just like, Hey, I just want to get in better shape and start, you know, looking like I, you know, lift at that rate, you probably just need a lot more better, you know, a lot better work on like your habits and some perceptions, lifestyle stuff. But as you get like nearing these spots, you know, or nearing, your, your goals, the harder, you know, you have to work in terms of not necessarily like the effort you put in, but like the, the preciseness and things like that, because at certain levels, like, especially when you get into dieting and stuff, like you might be masking progress with like inflammation from, you know, you eating foods that you didn't realize you have like a low grade, you know, inflammatory response to when you're holding extra water and you're like, why is this fat loss stalling? Fat loss isn't really stalling. You're just continuously putting food in your body that is making you retain water because you don't digest it really well. So there's like, it's just like this continuum, right? And kind of what I've found, especially like myself right now, right? I'm eating 30, like 39, 80 calories per day. If I do that in three meals, I'm going to be a bloated freaking mess because it's just, it's too much, especially with those carbohydrates. That's you know, almost 200 grams of carbs every single meal. And then, you know, a hundred and, or sorry, I don't even know, like 90 some grams of protein every single meal like that, that's going to bog me down. I'm going to be super full and uncomfortable. 
And it's one of those things is like by taking advantage of the hours of the day and making these like kind of micro adjustments that might not matter if you're just trying to like, Hey, I want to put on muscle, but the deeper you go, the more refined your process needs to become um, to a certain degree. Are you saying in terms, so you mentioned like you would feel more bloated and bogged down from a results standpoint, like, like, you know, if we had like a washout period of like, mm-hmm. you know, a week when we're not focusing on feeling, do you think that would make a big difference results wise? It could, especially because the quality of your digestion, I do think will impact how efficient your body's going to be able to, you know, um, produce, you know, muscle protein synthesis, um, how much of absorption you get of the minerals and nutrients you're eating, how much of it will just kind of pass through. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're having like, when you're bogging down your digestive system with like a massive meal, you know, a 1300 calorie meal, 1400 calorie meal, I'm talking like low fat meals too. Yeah. Um, you might not get a smooth digestion, right? Your body might um, kind of, you might pass over a threshold where um, you don't have like enough enzymes to sufficiently produce or to efficiently, sufficiently digest that as well as you could if you split that into two meals over like four hours as opposed mm-hmm. to that one meal in an hour um so i mean i think when at the end of the like at, at the back end with the goal of hypertrophy and stuff we're making these like large cons- um, assumptions that digestion is completely equated for a normal right. um, inflammation and all these things but if you give me someone who's you know eating we give you know two people eating three thousand calories one person's you know a farting gassy mess who has diarrhea, you know, twice a day, the other guy has perfect digestion, everything's going much, you know, more smoothly, and he feels great. I think that second person's going to make more progress, because like hypertrophy is not a primary cascade of metabolic function, right? It's if it's like a secondary thing. If your digestive system's like a mess, and it's fighting on trying to just get back to homeostasis, you're probably not going to be in a great position to put on as much muscle as you could. And and another part of that could be from the stress response, right? When you're all messed up and your digestion's total, totally tanked, your cortisol is going to be different than it would be if it wasn't. And, you know, when you know that cortisol and testosterone work in an inverse relationship. So if we can bring cortisol down more consistently over that week, it allows for a higher, you know, uh, testosterone levels, which again, we're going to be important for recovery training. Maybe you can get an extra rep now because you're better recovered. So these things over time, I think like can add up. Does it matter like in one week? Probably too short, but you know, when you think about it in the long term pattern, these things really do matter. Yeah, I always wonder that I mean, I'm obviously a huge confounding variable there is like, so I'm saying, well, do you think it matters from muscle growth? But if somebody really is like having a ton of gas and you know, bloated and everything, the huge confounding variable is they're almost certainly not going to have as productive workouts, right? So like, is it just that they're actually, you know, their digestion's off and everything? Or is it because due to that, their workouts are sucking? And that's pretty hard to um, separate out. Ultimately, though, it doesn't really, I mean, it matters from like an intellectual standpoint, but at the end of the day, the results are still worse, right? So that's kind of like what we're, we're talking about here. Um, and I, I, I also wonder how much though that comes down to the pattern of eating you're used to because um, obviously, you know, we, we do tend to adapt. And when I was eating six to eight meals a day, the meals were, you know, four to 600 calories, right? And that was pretty normal for me. And it's funny, because now I eat three meals a day. And I think back, and I'm like, when was I satisfied with such small meals? Because now, and again, I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but I just, I've always liked bigger meals. And, um, 
I think for some people it could be problematic, you know, people with like eating disorders and stuff like that. If they're saving all their calories for the end, I like to do that, but I don't, again, I don't have any of the eating issues in that regard. Um, but like yesterday I had 3,600 calories and this is a more extreme example. It's usually not this much, but I had like 800 calories, 800 calories again. And then I had a 2000 calorie meal and I didn't feel like anything. It, to me, that was just a super normal meal. It was like one big savory thing. And then one like kind of sweet, like banana ice cream thing I make, um, felt fine. Now I'm eating way less carbs than you. I will add, you know, I'm having maybe 250 grams of carbs. So that's, that's a lot different than 600 grams of carbs. And, you know, mm -hmm. depending on like how fibrous the carbs you're eating and how much volume that is, that can make a big difference. But, um, at this point, I feel like I'd almost be unsatisfied with smaller meals. And there's also some research to show that people who intermittent fast have lower levels of inflammation. Although again, confounding variables, they tend to eat fewer calories, which correlates mm -hmm. with lowering levels of inflammation. So um, obviously it's a pretty complex topic. It's definitely a complex topic. And it's really something I found like person to person, right? Um, I think for me, I don't, I don't really like when, especially with like my clients, I say, Hey, generally around four meals, I find works best for a lot of people. It's a good starting point, right? I like a standard breakfast, lunch, dinner, and let's get a post-workout meal. And right. Because we can take advantage of the hormonal response to changes post-training, you know, help drive the cortisol down, shift back into parasympathetic. And what's kind of nice there is you can usually fit another meal in shortly because you're hungry. Like you'll, your body will just suck up that first meal. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't like, I don't think every when people are like, I want to start having six meals per day. I'm like, well, okay, well, why right now we're doing three. Why do you think you need six? Um, with my, you know, own eating over the past, like since like, seven, eight months, I started at four. And then when they started getting really big and, you know, kind of, I would be sitting there like sweating really bad. I'm like, okay, let's break this one out. I have an extra, you know, I have time here. Let's move it to five. And then when I kind of maxed that out, now I'm like at six. Mm -hmm. I think personally, I like the four, four to five, I think is, is pretty, good for me. The only time I do this six is when I have just such a high volume of food, I need to take advantage of the time right. for it. Yeah. And kind of like what Brian was saying about like the, the sets, right. It's almost like people would say like the frequency is like the benefit. It's like, well, maybe, but also the, one of the big values to the increased frequency of training is that you can distribute that volume over that. And from a meal standpoint, well, Hey, if you're eating 2000 calories, then three meals is, is I'm almost certain going to be fine. But then if you're eating four or 5,000 calories, I can eat that in three meals, but a lot of people would have a, a difficult time doing that. So you do, it makes sense just to distribute it from a practical standpoint. Practical for sure. The next level deep that I usually like to go there is blood sugars. So if someone has um, like a little bit of insulin resistance, right. And that, you know, three meals with 200 grams of carbs in them each or 150 grams of carb, whatever is going to skyrocket your blood glucose. Um, and then that might impact like your energy levels and you get that post, you know, meal kind of dip by spreading that out a little bit more. We can kind of keep more even keel blood glucose levels, which impacts like energy and stuff like that. And opposed to, um, you know, keeping when with whether our goal is like mitigating fat gain as we're eating up, you know, keeping your blood sugar a little bit more kind of stable will help too with that. So it's not shoving, you know, creating such a, a such a robust insulin spike in, in response to that. I have thoughts on that, but before I do it. Brian, I know we've been over talking for anything to add there. <laughs> um, I will just say that I, I tend to align more with kind of the, your, your thoughts on the, the situation, at least from like a preference standpoint. And I know preference doesn't always equal optimality. Um, I did like pure IF 
from like 2012 to 2020. Um, I really had like two meals a day mm. and they were both massive. And my window shrunk from like an eight hour eating window to by the end, I would have some days with like a four hour eating window or even some days with just one meal. Like it was wow. almost like a challenge to see how long I could go and not yeah. eat and then, and then eat. Um, and just to point out real quick, that's a lot of, you had that before and after picture of you at the same weight, which I think was 2014 to like now, right? The that oh, was no, 2007. That was okay. 2007 to now, yeah, or 2006 yeah. to now. But it had a large portion of that in it. Was it? Yeah. Um, but since, like, so I will say that you know, I never. I think that as Aaron said, when you get closer to your goal and you're looking to really optimize down to the final piece, it becomes that much more important. So when I did my diet um, from June to September, it's like a 13 week diet. I went from 205 to 185. I dialed it in much more effectively there. It was actually the first time that I really strategically stopped intermittent fasting and purposefully added in calories earlier in the day. Um, but what I found was that I really didn't enjoy eating earlier in the day. I knew I had to, and, and it was part of the process. And I also tend Just to work out. Yeah, yeah, for dieting. And then I also tend to, to work out in the morning. So I didn't want to uh, work out and then not eat for so many hours. I wanted to protect muscle, et cetera. So I fell into this pattern of kind of having a hundred grams of more or less liquid protein, mm. um, throughout the morning period. And I would just kind of like, you know, have 30 here, 30 there, 30 there. And over the course of four or five hours, I would get a hundred grams of protein, but there wouldn't be any food in it. And then I would still have my two big meals at like, you know, 2 PM and 7 PM or whatever. And that tended to, to work pretty well for me. And I felt confident that at least I was getting that MPS response that I was looking for earlier in the day. Is that why? Because I would agree. Like I had a client recently. And it's funny, like you got to make sure you go over everything sometimes because I found out like six weeks in that he was working out at like 8 a.m. And then he was eating his first meal at like 1 p.m. And I was like, okay, I guess I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> cover this please eat after your workout now, and you know not ironically but interestingly he's made amazing progress despite that so it goes to show i mean when mm -hmm. when you still have a lot of progress left to make a lot of things will work um but other was there a reason besides the fact that you were working out in the morning that you felt you needed to eat earlier because i agree with that reason but i don't know yeah I wanted the, the MPS response. I'd been listening at that point to a ton of the stronger by science stuff. Mm. And they really were talking about how, like, you know, as Aaron said, the four meal piece being like four is better than three kind of idea. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I see the argument for why IF is good and bad for both dieting and, and for gaining, right? Like for gaining, obviously you're getting less MPS response. You're slamming all this protein into this period. You don't know if it's going to get all digested, blah, blah, blah. I've never had a problem gaining weight and massing with two big meals a day. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to dieting, because I know that I'm putting my body in this depleted state, it just felt more important to me. Yeah. Um, and so I made the decision that, you know, adding liquid in was going to be kind of a, a nice compromise for myself to make sure I was hitting those, those metrics that I was looking for. Yeah. That, that's pretty consistently what I do almost every day. It's like a shake in the morning and it's like, I'm a morning person and I used to eat these huge breakfasts. It's like, because I believed in that, I always, always have my first meal was my biggest and then it would gradually get smaller and smaller to the point that like my seventh meal was like two eggs or something, you know? And now it's like totally the opposite because I enjoy <laughs> eating at night. Yeah. And um, so in the morning I'll just have a shake because I don't, every once in a while I'll actually make a big meal, but like 
when I wake up and I'm like rushing to work, it's just so much easier to just drink this on the way to work than to like have like this huge bowl of food or something. And then at lunch, I am again, I'm working. So I don't want to like to eat this huge meal and then go do like five hours of like dental work. I'm just like, oh, so I have like, you know, a normal size meal. And then when I come home, I have a pretty big meal. Um, and there's, there is some research to show that that's maybe not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there is some that shows benefits to time restricted feeding and having that earlier in the day to having the bulk of your calories. I think if you were to do everything like perfectly, that's probably how I would, I would, I would arrange it. Um, I don't know if it makes enough of a difference though, for me to, drastically change from my preference, you know, to come home and like, you know, I don't have my own family right now or any kids, but like it, when I do, I don't want to come home and there's this family dinner. And now I got, I'm, I'm like, no guys, I'm going to have my 300 calorie meal here. Sorry. I already had a 1500 calorie breakfast, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, part of the, I think thing I loved and what gravitated me towards intermittent fasting so much was the kind of mental acuity piece that comes with being fasted in the morning. And then mm-hmm. also kind of the the way that you're not distracted by food. So I think the distraction fits both physiologically and that your body's not distracted with like this process of digestion that kind of bogs your brain down a little bit, or at least it mm-hmm. feels that way. Yeah. As much as it is also the distraction of having to like prepare and think about food that you're going to put in your mouth. So I really enjoy that. And I think that's why I've kind of gravitated more toward just the liquid in the morning, because like you said, it's just simple. It's easy. It doesn't bog my brain down. Um, but it supplies my muscles with, you know, the protein that it needs. So I think overall it's been like a net positive for me. Yeah. Um, last thing on nutrition that I want to touch on Aaron, like you just started talking about the, the glucose and I mean, I've, I've never had any glucose issues on like blood work. Um, I've bought like a monitor for ketones that also measures blood glucose. And, um, interestingly, I actually, there was one time I was this past diet and I had a, I was like, I'm just going to do like a keto cheat day, kind of just to see what would happen. Um, I ate 8,000 calories of keto food, um, which was like, I actually enjoyed it, but like normally I wouldn't, but like, um, but it was like a lot of quest bars, like heavy cream, things like that. Again, don't recommend this just so that I tried. And I, it, shockingly to me, um, I had over 300 grams of carbs through and, and like a lot of it was like the fiber and things that are in these like quest bars and whatnot. And I stayed in ketosis the whole time, despite 300 plus grams of the carbs in there. Um, which I, I found very interesting in contrast to another time fasted, I had maybe like 50 grams of carbs, like just carbs from like candy. And, um, my glucose shot up to like, I don't know, like one thirty or something like that. Um, whereas that whole day on the keto cheat day, it was like 80 or below the whole time. Um, so that's just, you know, interesting story, but I, I don't know, Aaron, like you, it seems, it sounds like you focus on the blood glucose thing. Is that something that you're measuring throughout the day or you're just kind of thinking about it more? No, generally kind of like fasting numbers, um, because we know, like, let's say we're in a, in a gaining phase, right. And your fasting blood glucose numbers start creeping up into the low one hundreds, you know, one tens or something like that. It's from a health standpoint too, right. Especially with like, you know, diabetes and in your pancreas, we know it's best like, okay, we're either going to pull things back a little bit. Maybe we've pushed a little bit too hard. Um, maybe stress and cortisol is a little bit too high systemic level. That's kind of pushing that. And just knowing that like, it's, so that's like one side of it, right? The other kind of side of it that I will look at um, when starting a diet. 
So when you're starting a diet, if you're already in a good range, the first like, couple of weeks of that diet will be a little bit easier because your fasting blood glucose is already in, in, a, in a better range. When it's higher, right? We know that there's just more glucose in the system. Your body's going to preferentially, obviously, always burn glucose when it has available. When it has, you know, when it's available. Um, so just kind of you can modify diet a little bit there, pulling carbs a little bit down, pushing carbs over to fat, or even just creating a little bit more of a deficit to help kind of get you in a, a more optimal position to kind of um, you know start um, putting one foot in front of the other. From are you finding that you have a, a significant number of clients getting to 100 plus during a bulk when fasted? It depends. So one thing that's really, really wild is like um, people, other parts of people's lives, right? So if someone's working like night shift or something like that, yeah, their, their blood glucose will be higher. When, they, when, you, when different parts of your lifestyle will kind of fight against your natural physiology, like night shift is one. Someone's in like a super stressful period in their life. Maybe they're going through a divorce or something like that. They'll be significantly higher. Um, so it's been really, really wild. This has been like a, a newer, like the past year, I would say 2020 part of my business and with clients are paying a lot more attention to these other seemingly not as um, direct um, aspects, but have like these large cascading effects that essentially make, you know, the, the fat loss, the muscle building things harder because of their effects on your physiology and um, how you feel, how you perform your mood performance and type, type of, that type yeah. of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I think probably, uh, and maybe we've all experienced this, like when you're young and working out, it, there's a lot of things you just don't even think of, right? Like, on the radar. I, yeah, like I've had a lot of blood work done in my life, like a lot. And um, my glucose is, I mean, I always get it done because I get a CMP done. So it's just on there. But like the highest I've ever had, it was like 95. And usually it's somewhere between like 65 to 90. So it's just like, I just breeze through it when I'm looking, you know, but yeah, obviously, I mean, it's, it's something that can be a serious problem. If you're young and active, it's almost never a problem. But as you, you know, if you are bulking up and you're, you know, 30s, certainly your 40s, I mean, these are things you actually have to look at. Yeah, because it's like the, like we have these, you know, physique goals, um, performance type goals, but as we, you know, we're get a little bit older, right? Like I'm, I'll be 33 in a couple of weeks. They're fun and all, but like, I want to, I'm concerned about my health. You know what I mean? I don't care if my legs grow an extra half inch, if my cholesterol is like sky high and I'm having all these um, like um, lipid issues. Like, no, I, it's, it's important to consider like as we get a little bit older and especially when you have like a family and that sort of stuff and you need to provide and make sure that you're there to, you know, help take care of people. Right, right. Yeah. It's, and uh, Brian, you're 37? 38. 38. Damn, I, can't, I just don't get that, man. You do not look nine years older than me. Um, yeah, both of you guys look great. And the, I don't know if you guys know a Vigorous Steve. I just had him on my podcast. Um, he's just like a, a YouTuber. Um, but he's, he's 37 or 38 as well. And just like, it's funny because like a lot of people I find in like the industry actually look worse, especially those who use like performance enhancing drugs. Just seems to like age you. Um, but I don't know. You guys are doing well. <laughs> yeah. One Thanks, thing that's man. been, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm at a point now, like I'm excited to get over, you know, like I every, as this time goes on, I feel better and better, especially because like I had a rough patch in the last couple of years, like my time doing CrossFit where I was just, my body was falling apart a bunch. Mm. So like, it's great. Like I feel fantastic. It's been really, really cool. I think. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was consistently doing heavy squats and deadlifts and I remember thinking like, Oh my God, if my back is this bad now at 21, I mean, I like, I never really had a serious injury, but I remember I was doing pull-ups and like something, my lat popped. I was doing, um, 
when I was doing bench press and I was doing incline, I was getting like a lot stronger and my pec, it was like, I was like, if I do one more rep, this is going to tear. Like, thankfully there was a warning, but it was like not good. And then there was probably twice where I went really heavy on deadlifts and like, I couldn't bend over to put my socks on. I mean, it was bad. And I was like, what's it going to be like when I'm like 30, but now I just don't train like an idiot all the time. And, and I actually very rarely am injured. So you can uh, do dumb shit in any exercise endeavor. Yeah. And um, so like, like you said, you know, you fucked your back up or you could barely bend over to, to put your sock on doing bodybuilding or strength training style training. We decided to do a workout that was like, 315 deadlift for 50 reps as quickly as possible with like some box jumps in the middle, you know, and it it produces the same response where your, your toothbrush falls and you're like, fuck this toothbrush is on the ground. You know, like, (laughs) what am I going to do now? This is awful. Um, so I think that, you know, to our audience, like as ex crossfitters, like I still speak to, I would say half my audience is probably ex crossfitters at this Mm -hmm. point or, or current crossfitters. And, um, I call hypertrophy training a sustainable method. Like that's part of the marketing that I use in the language that I speak about it is like, you know, you have this dumb shit that you've been doing and then you have hypertrophy training. And even though you can still do dumb shit in hypertrophy training, like, you know, it's a lot more likely that you're going to do it in a sustainable manner where you can continue doing this for many years going forward. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, so last question for you guys. Uh, and I don't know if both of you incorporate it, but I know Aaron, I saw you incorporating you said you've been incorporating really cold showers for a while and then i saw you do like an ice bath um that's not an area i've really delved into much at all i did have somebody ask me about it and i kind of had to defer um just because most of the research i've seen talking about it showed at best like some mild benefits and then i've seen other people who were really into both cold therapy and sauna um that gets i think a little bit out of the like standard fitness space you know so i don't know what was your reasoning behind it and what did you find um, for me, the, the cold, I did a year of cold showers, only taking cold showers. It was more of a, like, just like a mental challenge, really. Mm. I'd say if anything from what I read, all of the physical benefits were incredibly marginal, like probably un- immeasurable. Yeah. Um, if anything with like the cold tubs, it probably blunts some of the hypertrophy response. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's something I think if you were doing consistently, it would probably be a disadvantage. Um, the showers for me were purely just a, a challenge. So our hot, we, our hot water heater went out. We were living in Colombia at the time, um, in South America and they just didn't show up to fix it for like 10 days. So I was like, Oh, I don't have a choice. I need to take a shower. Right. So I was taking cold showers and then I was like, well, I did 10, like maybe I can do 20. And then 20 turned into like 50, 50 turned into a hundred. And I was like, I'm just going to go for a year. Wow. Um, so that was just a big mental challenge. The ice baths were like a week or two ago here, a guy um, in Playa del Carmen was doing it. And I would wanted, I wanted to see like, Hey, would that year of cold showers, like change how I would respond to like really cold temperatures. You know what I mean? And I was surprised it did. It just kind of felt, it was cold, but it felt like almost a comfortable feeling. And there was a handful of people there. Other guys got in and immediately hit that, like um, that shock response, right? Where they start like hyperventilating and stuff, but it just didn't happen to me. And I was really, really surprised. And I think it was only because I was used to being cold from taking those cold showers for a year. Had you done a cold, I think an ice bath before to gauge it? Only in high school when we had to do it for football. And it was like, like, okay, you're in for two minutes. And it was awful, like full blown, like teeth chattering, like, you know, uh, like shaking real bad and a very um, not fun 
um, experience. And then like this past, you know, or two weekends ago, whatever, I did eight minutes, like, like not much issue. Okay. Wow. So it, it does sound like mostly it was like a mental thing for you. Though. Mental. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw one guy, I don't know what his credentials were. He was talking to somebody else who I do respect, but the other guy didn't really comment on it. And he was saying how like, you know, the body is just like, you just need to put it through stress, which, you know, there's something to be said for a hermetic response. Right. But um, he was acting like, you know, this would just be the cure to everything. And I'm like, man, like I, I've seen more benefit in research from sauna and, and like really hot temperatures than I have seen from cold. I, I really don't know if I, again, other than the mental aspect, I mean, I, I will say like after a really cold shower, you can come out of even acutely, you can feel really good after that. Um, almost like a clear headed thought, but I don't know if like physiologically I'd expect much, but the sauna I'm kind of interested in. Um, I don't do it. I don't know if you guys have looked into it at all, but it does seem like there, there are actually some benefits to it um, beyond just what you'd get from like working out, for instance. Yeah, I think with the sauna, you get a little bit more from, I, this is from my standpoint and the person, mm -hmm. you know, from what I have seen, I see more of like your evidence-based type people speaking more positively about the sauna than I do as opposed to the ice baths yeah, and yeah. stuff. You can say yeah. something, Brian? anecdotally um when we were doing crossfit my knees were always beat up like constantly in shambles and um the apartment complex i was living in at the time had a hot tub which is you know heat therapy similar similar idea um and i would go in there twice a day like my knees actually would notice a difference so we went on vacation for a week and i didn't have access to the hot tub but i continued training and by the end of that week like i was hobbling just in daily life to get around. And then yeah. as soon as I got back to my apartment and started doing my like twice daily, you know, 15 to 20 minute hot tubs, you know, at least my knees were functioning again and I could continue to squat. So. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to look into, um, cause I, I have done, like I said, like daily squatting and I never had knee issues. I was really kind of lucky in that regard. And I wanted to do, um, like dunk training, like dunk a basketball and within like two weeks, my knees were killing me just from the high impact. Um, so I just stopped. <laughs> I just didn't care about the goal that much. And then, uh, like I could dunk like a tennis ball. Um, but in order to actually, you know, palm a basketball and to get that over, you need you know, a few more inches. So, um, then I recently set a, a running goal and again, I stopped and took a break because I, I probably went too hard too fast, but just going on like the treadmill within again, like three weeks, my, my knees were killing me. Um, I don't, do you guys ever like run? Or do you just do like biking or for cardio? I just walk. walk. Yeah, I really like walking. Um, I'm a big fan of the like the spin bike for like okay. warming up. So you can like obviously we can turn the dial to change the resistance pattern. I, I love that, especially for leg days. Um, if I there are times where I kind of want to bring in some hit or whatever. And if I were to do that again, it would only be short hill sprints. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think my running days are behind me. Yeah. Did you guys ever do like remember like like your best mile times or anything like that when you were young six flat basically okay all i know is it wasn't impressive when i was like 120 pounds so as an adult <laughs> it's probably even less impressive. right well my goal brian is a, a six minute mile just because i never did it um and I, I wasn't like a runner at all um but i think i had like a 6 30 when i was like you know anorexically skinny so i was like okay if i could do a, a six minute mile now like that'd be pretty cool and part of it is because it's like, I like objective goals and things that I can measure. And like with, with running, I don't, 
like a mile time is the only thing people even like have a reference for. I feel like, you know, like from high school and stuff like that. Cause like, other than that, like I, like if, like I have a bike here, like inside, but I don't know what I would even set for like this generic bike goal. You know what I mean? Mm. So, um, so it's really just to see if I can do it. It would be cool if I could do, so like I recently hit, um, 225 for 16 bench. And, um, I, like there's like some things where if I could do them all at the same time, that would be cool. You know, maybe like a 225 overhead press while doing like a six minute mile run, like things where, cause obviously the fatter I get, the stronger my overhead press is going to be, but then the slower I'm going to become, you know, so it, to be able to do all of it. I just saw something. Um, I think it was a couple months back by now, but I just saw it the other day. This, uh, this CrossFit guy, he's a, he's a, out of, in San Diego, deadlifted 500 pounds and then ran a sub, I want to say sub five minute mile. Yeah. like immediately after like they pulled out the weights on the track and hit it wow. and he was a, he's a big dude too i think he's bigger than all three of us really oh. so it was pretty impressive he's not genetically average dave <laughs> <laughs> yeah man no some people are just like i but i marvel at that stuff man like people think like i complain yeah. about it and it's like look i'm only complaining that the people who will act like it doesn't matter at all like that to me is just ridiculous but if you've like accepted that this is a thing, like I marvel at that, like I would marvel at like Stephen Hawking's intelligence. You know, I just think it's like awesome to just see what is possible, even if, if I'm never going to get close to that. It's just cool to see these outliers, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. what you're what you're talking about is like literally what we were trying to achieve in CrossFit the whole time, right? To be like the strongest one, but also be fit and have endurance and be able to apply all these different characteristics at the same time. And like, ultimately it really led to just not being great at anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That's the thing. <laughs> it, it's hard. And you, you would probably have to specialize in something, then just try to maintain that while you specialize in something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think that's what it really turned into for me. I was yeah. hanging on, on the endurance type stuff. I just wanted to get strong and then yeah. I would just complain a lot at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, a few of us went to my gym recently and I had, there was like a bunch of treadmills in a row. And so I said, all right, just like kind of like a test of will let's set it to 10 miles an hour, which is, you know, six yep. minute mile pace and just see who can go the longest. And, um, so one tapped out at three, like 20, and then the other one tapped out at like three thirty. So I was like, all right, let's go. So I made it to four minutes. So I know I could at least like keep the pace for a while. I'm not there yet. And again, any, any runner who listens to this would probably think this is like so pathetic, <laughs> like so bad. <laughs> um, but you know, for me, um, but it was, it was definitely like an ego thing. I tried to get into the zone. And once I stopped, as anybody who's ever pushed themselves knows, like there's that adrenaline high. And then once that, you know, goes away, you're like, Oh crap. And like, I like was dead like my lungs i and of course this is like peak covid time so i'm like hacking my lungs out in the gym i like ran across to like the grocery store and was like you know like the spray that's supposed to soothe your throat <laughs> i was like drinking this i was like this was such a dumb idea but i you know when you get competitive like that yep. you know i think all of us kind of understand that competitive spirit so 500 meter row test dude that was the the crossfit one that would leave you just in shambles for like the rest of the day like you you do the 500 meter row test and you're just like on the ground for at least an hour yeah, I don't even have would, a reference for what that would look like. How long would that be? It's a uh, it, a top a, a great time. Like my best time, I think was one twenty six and change or something like that. But it's like like a, all a minute out, and 26? a minute twenty six. Okay. Yeah, it's like running uh running a similar like a amount of distance. Meter or something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Four hundred meter would probably be faster, but similar yeah. energy system. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah, rowing is something I've almost never done. People people always say it's great. It's just I've I've been on a rowing machine maybe like twice in my life. So. 
Cool, cool. It's awful. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time for this. This was good. Pretty much covered everything. Um, so where can people find more of your stuff? I'm at uh, evolvedtrainingsystems.com. Um, you can also find me under Evolved Training Systems or my name, Brian Borstein, on the gram. Cool. Aaron? For me, you can find me on Instagram at Aaron underscore Straker or my um, nutrition coaching company, strakernutritionco.com. And then Brian and I host a podcast together called Eat, Train, Prosper. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks again. I'll, of course, have links to all of that below. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having us, Dave.